You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, November 22, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. In uh, 1972, uh, researchers at Stanford University conducted the now famous or maybe infamous is the better word, infamous marshmallow experiment. You ever heard of the marshmallow experiment? There were a number of of children that were brought in by Stanford University researchers and they were given an option. They were sat at a table in an observation room and they were given the option of having one marshmallow right then and right there or waiting an unknown period of time. And if they were to wait, they would be given two small treats of their own choice. Get what you can see in front of you right now or wait. I don't know how long, and get more of what you see and what you want. What would you have done? I know what my kids would have done. They found that the kids who waited later on in follow-up studies actually showed higher SAT scores, higher physical health markers, and a whole host of other things. Now, spiritually speaking, the the ability to wait, not so much for the marshmallow or for two marshmallows, but the ability for us to wait for the Lord to achieve His purposes and His ways and His time, it's, it's one of the most necessary and yet difficult virtues that Christians are called to cultivate. And this morning, as we Look at this story, this moment in David's life in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and his reflections on it in Psalm 57. We're going to get a glimpse at a time when David was faced with a very real temptation to impatience with God. And yet he waited. But did he wait by sheer force of willpower or was it something else? Well, as we go through the story this morning, seeing What enabled David to wait will make all the difference for you and I when we find ourselves in a situation like this, in a season or a time or a moment of distress when patience with God to do what God has promised to do in the ways that he intends to do it according to his own time can can feel elusive. So if you've got your Bibles open, 1 Samuel 24, we actually left off last week in chapter 23 without finishing the whole thing. And If we had finished off chapter 23, you would have seen that there was a point in time in which Saul and his men are pursuing David and his men, and they actually get David trapped. Saul and his armies are on one side of a mountain, David and his men are on the other side of a mountain, and they've got nowhere to go. Saul executes a movement to flank David, and he comes up both sides of the mountain. And the jaws of Saul's army are finally about to snap closed on David once and for all. But the Lord intervenes. Saul gets word that the Philistines are actually now raiding the land back in Judea while Saul was chasing David, so Saul had a choice to make. Do I close in and finally finish David off, or do I do what I was supposed to do as king of God's people and go help God's people? Well, Saul decided to go back. He turned from pursuing David and went back to deal with the Philistines. And the end of chapter 3 tells us that David left from that mountain and he and his men went to the strongholds of En Gedi. That is where chapter 24 takes place. And if you ever get the chance to go to Israel, some of you might have been there before, if you ever get the chance to go, I can guarantee you that your guide at some point in your journey is going to take you to En Gedi. It's an amazing place. Especially in David's day, En Gedi was perched high up on a, a rocky hillside above the Dead Sea. And up in this region where it was, was a number of natural water sources. And these water sources would flow down these rocky hillsides, providing fresh water. And so there's this mountainous area with a system of caves that could fortify a group of people who were trying to take refuge while they got natural water supply. It was a perfect place for them to go. And so that's where they actually go. And it's where the story takes place. David and his men are up in En Gedi. And so verse 1 tells us that when Saul returned from following the Philistines. And we're just assuming, we don't really know the details, that Saul was successful. Saul was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Go back at some point this week and and read 
1 Samuel so far since David has been on the run, it's amazing how many times somebody is telling somebody else where someone is. I mean, the story of their information network is unbelievable. So Saul gets word, David is in Gedi, now I can go get him, right? So verse 2, Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. Now, if you were with us last week, you might remember, maybe you won't, but I'll remind you. At this point, David's numbers have risen to about 600. Started with around 300 of the most distressed and indebted people that flocked to David. Now we're at 600. But Saul, Saul has gone about and chosen 3,000 of the best amongst Israel's men. Not that Saul's army numbers 3,000. Saul went throughout all of Israel and said, I want the best of them all. 3,000 of the most elite fighters in Israel. And so here in Engedi, David is outnumbered five to one. The most elite soldiers in all of Israel against his band of downtrodden and distressed. And the irony, if you read close enough, is that Saul's had to go choose 3,000 of the best to hunt down the one that God chose for his people. And so this is what's happening And verse 3 tells us that Saul has come to the sheepfolds, by the way. And when he gets there, he sees a cave. And when he sees that cave, he makes a decision. He says, this looks like a good cave to go and relieve myself in. Now, the Hebrew right here for relieve himself means relieve himself. That's what it means. Sometimes we forget these are real people. This is real history. These are real stories. So even the king had to go to the bathroom. So Saul sees a cave and is like, that's a good spot for me to go handle my business, right? Now what he didn't know is that David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of that cave. Way back in the dark recesses of this system of caves, David and his men were huddled. And I imagine that at some point, someone heard a commotion out by the mouth of the cave. You know, an animal's coming in, a person's coming in, some kind of sentinel's out there looking to see, and they see it is a man, and lo and behold, the garments of the king come in. Here he is. Not only has he come in the cave, but he's dropped his pants. He's by himself. And word gets back to David, it's not just an animal and it's not just a man, it's Saul. And in this moment, there's a tremendous tension, if you imagine it. Both groups, both men, David and Saul, are in a tremendous moment of vulnerability right here. You know, Saul has left his 3,000 outside the cave, gone inside the cave by himself, where he thinks he's found the most secure cave in all of Engedi, right? And he walks in, takes his pants down. No more vulnerable place for Saul to be. But at the same time, David and his men... If they make one wrong move, one noise too loud, and Saul catches wind that someone's in there, and he walks outside, gives the command to his 3,000 men, David and his men are trapped in a cave. Tremendous tension, tremendous vulnerability. And the writer tells us in verse 4 that the men of David said to David, here is the day of which the Lord has said to you. They begin to sing. Did you grow up in church? This is the day. This is. They begin to sing, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And you have to stop and think for a second, if you've been with us at all through the story, has God actually said to David that he would give David's enemy into his hands for him to do as he sees fit? Not exactly. What's happening here is something that's natural for all of us if we were in the situation that David's men were in. Last week, in chapter 23, the Lord did tell David that he would give the Philistines, his enemy, into his hands. And so David's men are looking at a situation in which the man who has been chasing their leader now for probably a number of years, trying to kill him, endangering their own well-being and welfare, abusing his power amongst God's people, He's been 
placed at this moment in this cave all by himself. If the Philistines were David's enemy and God gave them into his hand, then this man who's trying to kill him must be his enemy. And here, the Lord has given him into your hand. David's men are doing what is common and natural to all of us. They are interpreting the favorable circumstances of their life as God's will for them. It's very easy to do. It's very natural for us to do. It's easy for us to confuse circumstances and God's will when the circumstances line up in favor for us to do the very thing our heart wants to do the most. And that's what's happening here for David's men. I hear it all the time with people. I know that it's God's will. It just feels so right. I know it in my own heart. Look, I, I, I know it must be God's will for me to move from this place to this place because I've been thinking as we've been sitting here, this house might not be right. And look, Lord popped this Zillow ad right in my email today. I wouldn't have been looking if he hadn't sent it. There it is. Never mind that it's going to change my budget completely. I'm not going to be able to tithe and give to the church or give to the work of the gospel. But this must be his will because it feels so right to be able to do it. I hear it all the time. I know it in my own heart. It's natural to begin to try to somehow interpret particular circumstances, favorable circumstances, even in our life as the Lord's will for what we're supposed to be doing, especially when those circumstances line up for us to do the very thing our heart wants to do the most, right? It's just inevitable. But if you're familiar at all with the story of Jonah, just because there's a empty seat on the boat doesn't always mean it's God's will for you to get on it, right? But we got to pick up the story. What's David going to do? David arises, the writer says, and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Now imagine it again. Close your eyes if you have to. This is real life. This is real history, real stories. David has to creep close enough in this cave from where he and his men were in the back up to where Saul is, he has to creep close enough, quietly enough, stealthily enough, for Saul not to know he's there, right? Be alerted, somehow protect himself or call his men. And he has to get close enough, quietly enough, with a sword sharp enough to cut off a corner of the robe without making a sound, without a tearing or a ripping sound. How tempting for David to take such a sword at such a moment at such a time and to cut something different off. Now we don't know here from the writer what the motives were in David's heart for cutting off the corner of Saul's robe the way he does. We can talk about it in just a minute. But the most important thing the writer wants us to realize that what's going on in David's heart is what happens after he does it. That's what's most important. Because verse 5, it says afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. See, what the writer is describing here is the work of David's conscience. See, the reaction that David has in his heart is probably due to the fact that what David did in cutting off Saul's robe had some level of vindictiveness, some level of bad intent in his heart. And this is where you can get to the different speculations for why he did it. If you've been with us through the whole story, you might be thinking in your mind, man, these robes have played a role in how the story's unfolded for a while. You know, it was back when Saul actually tore Samuel's robe, when Samuel delivered God's word of judgment to him as king, that Samuel turned back around and said, today the Lord has torn the kingdom from you. And it was back when Saul's son Jonathan made a covenant with David, committing himself in steadfast loyalty to David, that as a symbol, as a sign of his commitment and loyalty to David, he takes off his royal robe, that which designated him as prince next to the heir in line for the throne, and gives the robe, that position, to David. And so for David's conscience to strike him the way it does here in this moment It would lead us to believe that there was some other intent in David's heart in tearing this robe, in a sense saying, look, I'm tearing this kingdom from you, and it's going to be in my hands. 
We don't know exactly for sure. But in this moment, David might not have taken that sword and put it in the back of Saul's neck. But nonetheless, his conscience was burdened by what he did do and what it did reveal about what was going on in his heart. And it's important for us in reading the story to take a moment and just consider the presence and the reality of the conscience. I mean, the conscience is an essential aspect of being human. You know, even at the youngest of ages, every single person born on the face of the earth knows what it is to feel a sense of guilt and shame for wrongdoing. Everyone, even the youngest among us, knows what it is to go about your day living in the freedom of innocence, of being, having done the right thing in the right time, and what that actually means. Paul reminds us in his letter to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 2, that the conscience comes from God having written his law on every single person's heart. I love the way Eugene Peterson writes it in the message in Romans chapter 2. He said that we show that God's law is not something alien and imposed on us from without, but that it's woven into the very fabric of our creation, something deep within us that echoes God's yes and God's no, his right and his wrong. You know, for centuries, philosophers, psychologists, most famously men like Sigmund Freud have disagreed with Paul. They've tried to argue that our conscience is just our growing awareness of societal expectations in our life, but God's word is very clear that he wove his word into every human heart, so much so that someone who has never heard of what you and I might know as the Ten Commandments can naturally operate within a sense of guilt and innocence with regard to them. Because he's written it on our heart. And here, David's conscience is feeling guilty. And for the guilty conscience, it's, it's a heavy burden. But I want you to hear this. A guilty conscience is a just burden. It's right. David is feeling what you could call justifiable guilt. It's real. Friends, if you and I were to, and we could pick any number of things, if you and I were to gossip about someone else, slander someone else, harbor a, a bitterness in our heart towards someone else that finally gave rise in a, in, a, in a manner of animosity towards someone else, and we find ourselves feeling guilty or bad about that on the other side, we should. That's right. That's justifiable guilt. That is the conscience at work. Walter Shantry, one of the great Scottish theologians, he said, conscience is a friend. It's meant to hurry you and I into the arms of the only Savior who can save us from the broken law and its curse. A sensitive conscience is a gift from God. We're going to see as we go through the story over and over in the weeks to come that Saul's conscience has become seared. It's become hardened. But David's conscience, it's, it's still sensitive. And you and I, I just would offer this word of caution for you and I in the day in which we live. We, we live in a, a heavily therapeutic age. And there, there's wonderful blessings to godly counseling and therapy. But in a heavily therapeutic age, it's very easy for us to take justifiable guilt and justifiable shame that arises in our heart for wrongdoing, transgressing God's law, and somehow throwing it out the window, trying to rescue one another from feeling unjustifiable guilt and shame. We toss the whole thing out the window. But a sensitive conscience, it's a gift of God's grace. It's an evidence of an awareness in our life of his word, his law written on our hearts. And this is what we see happening in David here in the cave. And so David, the fruit of this conscience is going to come out. Look at verse 6. David says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the, the Lord's anointed. 
Well, what did he do to himself? No, Saul was anointed too. Saul had been anointed before David. And Saul's still the one on the throne. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put my hand out against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. You see, God's word that he had already spoken about his anointed, the ones that he would choose, those that he would put in place in leadership over his people, his word about them is what was governing David's conscience. So much so that David's conscience could feel the pang of guilt and weight of guilt when a sinful motive in his heart tempted him to stick his hand out and even cut off the rope of the one that the Lord has put in place. That even an action like that against the Lord's anointed is an action against the Lord himself. See, the kingdom was going to be David's. But the kingdom was not David's for him to take however he wanted, however he saw fit. It was for God to give him in his time and in his ways. And there's this amazing just tension and temptation going on right here. Is David going to try to achieve God's purposes in ways that would ultimately break God's commands? That's always the temptation, right? I mean, this is the temptation that's common even to you and I. I mean, isn't this where our hearts are tempted to somehow rationalize particular ends to justify particular, or rationalize particular ends means to justify particular ends? I mean, if you think about it like a human for a minute, killing Saul would solve a whole lot of David's problems. It would solve them really quickly. I mean, after all, wasn't Saul guilty? of murdering the high priest and allowing the entire city of Nob and the priesthood there to be slaughtered? I mean, wasn't the throne going to come to David anyway? I mean, didn't God say this was going to be his? One of the hardest parts of being a pastor, and some of you guys may even experience it in your relationships with one another, is to hear over and over from people how Temptation has set in in such a way that we've been able to rationalize certain sinful behavior if in the end it ends up in what we would think are godly ends. How many times, more than I would ever want to admit that I've heard someone who had committed adultery say they understood that God wanted this particular companionship for their life. He didn't want them to be alone. He wanted this particular person who would know them and love them and support them and be this way for them. And that person was not the one they were married to. But that's what God wants for his people. So it became very easy to rationalize all the decisions that would happen from that point forward to end up somewhere they never should have been. Doing what was not allowed. It's very easy for us to rationalize oftentimes ungodly means to get to what might be in our, our minds godly ends. And it's something for you and I to consider in a day and age when, when you and I are all thinking through how we are to respond to issues and, and moments and natures of things like injustice in our, our life and in our days. I mean, how do we speak about and pursue issues of reform? These are the very places where our hearts find the same kind of temptation David found himself in. If the end is what God wants, does it matter how we actually get there? Verse 7 tells us that David's men didn't see things the same way he did. So David had to persuade his men with these words. He didn't permit them to attack Saul. Literally, the the words actually say, David tore his men apart with his words. You see, they were probably expecting David to come back into the back of the cave with a severed head in his hand, not a piece of cloth. This is, after all, the guy who carried around Goliath's head, brought it to his meeting with Saul, took it up to Jerusalem where he put it on display. This is the great warrior, right? And there's the man who's been trying to kill him given over into his hand. This is not what they expected. So I imagine a handful of them, maybe the best of them, 
looked at David and said, hey, don't worry about it, boss. Everybody has a moment like that. We'll go take care of it for you. God's given him into our hands. We'll deal with it. And in that moment, David had to forcefully persuade, tear apart with his words his men. He had to persuade them that an open door, as one writer said, is not in itself proof of God's will. Circumstances in God's providence are not a substitute for the principle he's revealed in his word, in the Bible. See, for David's men, the line between the temptation to seize what they wanted and the providence of God being worked out things for his glory was pretty blurry. For them, just one swing of the sword and the throne was going to be David's. No more running, no more hiding, no more caves, no more poverty. People were singing songs about David in the street before he went on the run. One swing of the sword and nobody's sleeping in a cave, they're sleeping in a palace. People are singing songs about David and his men again. They're eating the king's food. But at what price? A.W. Pink would write about this moment and he would say that it would come at the sacrifice of a thousand precious experiences of God's care. A thousand precious experiences of God's provision, of God's guidance and of God's tenderness. Pink would say, not even a throne at that price is too dear. Faith, faith in the living God will wait. So deep in the recesses of that dark cave, the weight or the glory of God, as David had come to know him in his words, weighed on David's conscience. And it worked in David, the self-control necessary to not give in to his passions in that moment. Even while everybody around him was telling him it was the right thing to do. It's another sermon for another time, but I'll never forget God had put a particular man in my world early on when I got saved. And I don't remember the context of the conversation, but he would say things that have been etched into my mind forever. And one day he told me, He said, Robert, there will always be someone near and dear to you around you, ready to lower the bar of God's holiness whenever you want it. You'll always have somebody nearby willing to say that that's okay. And here's David surrounded by 600 men who have given their entire life to him, their loyalty to him who are suffering the same things because of Saul's anger towards him. And they're saying, this is God's hand. Go do it. But David's conscience has been shaped by God's word. And as one writer said, David acted in utter contempt of what was personal and selfish and in deepest reverence for what was holy and divine. To govern your will by a reverence for God is sure proof of a heart trained by frequent consultation of God's word. David was willing to wait because he was confident in God. A confidence in God that had come from frequent reminders of God's character through the words that God had already spoken. This is what cultivated David's confidence. And if we're going to be honest, the biggest enemy in our life, even today as Christians, isn't someone like Saul. It's our own inability to wait on God. That's why I said in the very beginning, it's one of the most important virtues, most important skills that we have to cultivate as Christians. And this patience comes from an increased confidence in who God is as we have frequent reminders of his character and nature from his word. This is what we see working in David's life in this season. He reveals it to us in Psalm 57. That's why we read that. If you've got a Bible, flip over to Psalm 57. Let me just show you a few things that God had revealed to David in the words he's already spoken about him, in the ways that he's cared for him, that we see David speaking as giving him that confidence 
that enables him to wait. Psalm 57 was written by David while he's on the run, living in these caves in the wilderness, running from Saul. And we get a glimpse of the character of God that as our hearts grip tighter upon, just like David's, our confidence in him and our ability to trust and wait grows. Look at verse 2. We'll just jump through a few for time's sake. David said, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. This is written while he's on the run in the wilderness. But David is saying that an increasing confidence in God is freeing him, even in moments like this, when Saul is at his hands, to obey God's word and not break it, to get to the place where God said he's already taking him. Disobeying God's word, even one of the chief commands, forget the fact that he's the Lord's anointed, Saul, forget that, go back to the Ten Commandments. Disregarding God's word about taking another's life and murder. One moment of disregarding and the throne is his. God's already promised it was going to be his. God put Saul there. No, David is confident. He's confident in God's sovereignty. That God has a purpose, that God has a plan, and that God will bring it about. He doesn't know how God's going to do it. doesn't know when God's going to do it, but he knows he will. And because his confidence in God's sovereignty to bring about the promise that he's made is growing stronger, David can wait. And while he waits, he can cry out. While he waits, he can plead with honesty from his heart, but while he waits, he can trust that God is indeed sovereign, as he has said. And not just that, verse 3, David says that this sovereign God will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David is in the wilderness, running from Saul, living in a cave. No home, no family around. The family he had came to him earlier, and they're the ones who doubted him earlier on. But David is confident that God's love for him is steadfast. And in his steadfast love, as David has already learned through the stories of those who have come before him, God is working out all things for his good, according to his plan, that David is confident that his sovereignty and goodness will fulfill and bring about. David is not left in this moment as he is writing this psalm at this season in his life wondering if all the hardship and all the difficulty, all the betrayal that he's experienced from those God has used him to actually deliver, if somehow it's some manner of vindictive retribution on God's part for something in David's life. No, David is confident that God's love for him is steadfast. Friends, how much more so you and I on this side of the cross can be confident that God's love towards us is steadfast, so much so that even some of the difficult seasons and times we're in aren't evidences of some kind of vengeful, vindictive act on God's part. But His love remains for us through His Son, unchanging, steadfast and eternal. David will say in verse 5, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. So here David's confidence in God and his character has grown to such a degree that even in his distress, and we read throughout the Psalms, he cries out for relief from these moments all the time. But even when he desires relief and he cries out for relief, what has most captivated his heart is that God would be glorified. That God would be exalted. The nature of God's glory has captivated David's heart even while he's on the run in the wilderness. So much so that this can be the cry of his heart even while he longs for relief from the moment he's in. This allows David, verse 7, to be able to proclaim that my heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. David has grown confident that God's love is steadfast towards him. 
So much so that David can then proclaim that his confidence, that his love is steadfast towards God is resolute. Friends, this, this is the sure foundation for you and I being able to wait on God in obedience. Confidence in God's goodness, confidence in his glory, confidence in his sovereignty, confidence in the steadfastness of his love. This is what protects us in moments from giving in to anxiousness, from falling to temptation, from taking revenge, from making compromise. It's going to give rise to particular actions in our life in these particular moments. There's going to be one we're going to see in David's life one more time later on in the story. But before we look at it, I want you to notice that this story in David's life, it, it's nestled right in the midst of a larger theological framework of God's story. Yes, God put Saul there in the cave. But no, David was not going to take the easy way to the throne. He wasn't going to use ungodly means to get godly gain. And as you read chapters 24, 25, and 26, they, they all kind of go together. They're all narratives of this particular season in David's life. What you'll find in chapters 24, 25, and 26 is that over a third of the 80 uses of the words good and evil in 1 Samuel, they're in these chapters. Oftentimes, they're together, good and evil. And as the writer writes the way he does, he's tying a string in our minds back from this wilderness in Engedi to the garden in Genesis and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we're reminded that David's temptation in the wilderness, in the cave, is the same as Adam's temptation in the garden. Ultimately, it was to impatience with God, to seize that which was forbidden according to God's word, to seize what he was convinced in his heart he needed to have and to take a bite of it. It's a string that ties us forward into the larger redemptive story too, though, when David's greater son, Jesus, would face a similar temptation in the wilderness himself. You might know the story, Satan will come to Jesus while he's in the wilderness for 40 days, and one of the things that he will present to Jesus, he will show him the kingdoms of the earth, and he tells him, all of these can be yours right now. All you've got to do is bow down. Bow down to me right now, and it's all yours. All he was doing was offering Jesus that which God had already promised, but God was going to bring it about in his way and in his time. It can be all yours right now. No waiting, no suffering, no man of many sorrows, no cross. If he had given in, you realize that means no salvation for you and I. It can be all yours right now. But Jesus, the second Adam and the greater David, was faithful till the end. Friends, in Jesus, God has given us a, a more sure word than even David had regarding his goodness and his steadfastness of his love, his glory and his grace. Just as he would tell those around him, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In Jesus, we see a more sure promise of God's sovereignty and the steadfastness of his love. That's why I love it when the writer of Hebrews will say that it's Jesus who's an anchor for our soul. In times of distress, when we're like a ship sitting out on the ocean, like a toy ship being thrown around the waves... When we see him, when our confidence is in him, his sovereignty and his goodness, his glory and the steadfastness of his love, it anchors us and it enables us in times to wait and even to obey. Friends, this is the action of the story. In this moment after David persuades his men, it tells us that Saul got up, didn't even realize that all this was going on around him, and he left the cave. The rest of the story is just dialogue. But in the dialogue, we, we see one more fruit of a heart increasing confidence in the character of God, even in distress and temptation like this. Watch this as we kind of read through this dialogue and bring the story to an end. After Saul gets up, and leaves, David arises, and he goes out of the cave, and he calls after Saul. 
my lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Now, I would have loved to have seen Saul's face. I mean, he knew David's voice. Very familiar. And then this is the man that's occupied all of his thoughts for years now. And he hears his voice. I wonder if there were goosebumps everywhere, if his face got flushed. I mean, I'd love to see it one day. But he turns around. and There's another sermon in here for another time on the respect that David shows Saul, even in his actions towards him. A respect towards those that God has appointed and put in authority. A respect that's due them for the office that they're in, irregardless of how they function in that office. It's another sermon for another time, maybe soon. We'll get there. But David gives Saul the proper respect, and at the same time, he makes himself vulnerable. He walks out of the cave, and he says to Saul, why, why are you listening to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Now, we know that no one's told Saul that. That's all Saul's old mind. Saul's the one that's been saying, David is after me. He's out in the bushes. He's ready to jump on me. And David's being diplomatic here. Verse 10, behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you into my hand in the cave. Look, Saul, here's the truth of God's providence where his hand is actually at work. Someone told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I won't put my hand out against my Lord for he is the Lord's anointed. Saul, I had every opportunity. I had all the reason in the world to do it. I had motive, I had opportunity but I showed restraint. And here's the evidence of my restraint and here's the evidence of my innocence. Verse 11, look, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand? For the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you can know and see there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I haven't sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. And may the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand will not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wickedness comes wickedness, but my hand will not be against you. Right, Saul, so if I was wicked, I would have acted that way, right? But after whom has the king of Israel come out? Out of the wicked comes wickedness. Well, Saul, who, who are you? What's coming out of you? What does that reveal you to be? After whom are you pursuing, Saul? A dead dog, a flea? I'm no threat to you. I never have been. I'm no treasonous rebel. I'm no threat. Why are you doing this? And then verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David is calling on the Lord to be judge. Right? This isn't some flippant, look, Saul, I'm going to let go and just let God. This isn't some, well, he's sovereign, whatever. No, David is calling on the Lord here to be judge. Confidence in God's character. Confidence in God's goodness. Confidence in his glory. Confidence in his sovereignty. Frees David, even in this, to be confident in God's just judgment. He isn't going to take matters into his own hands. He isn't going to avenge himself. He's going to allow God to do that. But he makes it very clear that is what he wants. Friends, appealing to God's justice for him to be judged, it's, it's not very PC for us to talk about or encourage these days. If anything, what's PC is, is us actually judging God. It's what C.S. Lewis wrote about when he talked about God being in the dock. God being put up on the witness stand for us to judge and accuse. If we're honest, it's way more common for us to judge God's words and his actions and his motives and even his very existence. But in reality, as David has seen and as his confidence has grown, it is God who is the judge. You and I, as his creation, we answer to him. It's his words, not ours, that are final. In fact, for those of you that have tasted of his grace through faith in his son, his justice and his judgment is something you and I look forward to and take great comfort in. He is not going to overlook wrongs. A day is going to come when every wrong is going to be made right. 
when truth is going to be exposed, when truth is going to be vindicated. This is something that we look forward to. And this is the reality that also allowed David to stand against Saul's sin and yet not take action into his own hands. Friends, the way of faith recognizes that God is indeed the one true and just judge. Nothing is going to get past him. And as our heart grows confident in this, we're free to leave vengeance and justice to him. Because you and I on this side of the cross know that even then he held nothing back when he poured out his judgment on his son in our place. He is going to fulfill his promise. And for those of us who have believed upon Jesus, we have nothing to fear in this. His justice and his judgment actually brings us confidence of the future. As you and I wait at times for God to work things out, we have to realize and be okay with the fact that waiting on him to do this, confident in who he is and what he has said, it's not weakness. Waiting doesn't mean weakness. In fact, go back and spend some time in the Psalms this week. The psalmist, David himself included, would often articulate in his waiting his desire for God to be judged, and he would offer up teeth-breaking, enemy-slaying cries for God to be just. As Walter Davis, the great Old Testament scholar, said, what is David doing in these prayers except what Scripture commands us to do, namely committing vengeance to God? David doesn't retaliate, but he asks God to bring judgment, to set things right. Why criticize him for putting his feeling into obedient prayers? If, God crushed, if God's crushed and afflicted people can't place their case in his hands and expect him to bring about just vengeance on their behalf, what hope can we have? Only a God who rights the wrongs inflicted on his people can be their well-proved help in trouble. Who can blame them if their cries are wrapped in emotion? David said, therefore, like David, we commit vengeance and justice to God, but we commit vengeance and justice to God. David's conscience, the weightiness of God's word on his heart, spared him that day from a sin that would have stained his entire future, even when everyone around him was encouraging him to do it. As the scene wraps up, and we'll wrap up this morning, David quit speaking, and verse 16 tells us that Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He looked at David and he said, you're more righteous than I, for you've repaid me good where I have repaid you evil. In verse 20, Saul's actually going to say, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Tears flowed from Saul's eyes and the realization of what God was doing in David came out of Saul's mouth, but it wasn't because he was afraid of David's sword. He was moved by David's grace his righteousness, and his mercy towards him. And in what should have been a moment of repentance, in what should have been a moment of reconciliation, in what should have been a moment of redemption, Saul, as you continue to read, was only concerned with self-preservation. He's going to pass on this opportunity with David. And the story is going to move on, and we're going to see much of the same. But there in the cave, David was resolute his confidence was in God as he has revealed himself. And that confidence freed David to be able to say, God, all judgment is in your hands. I don't need to kill Saul. You have a purpose that you will fulfill in my life. And I'm confident in your ability to do it. You are my treasure. I want you to be exalted in all of the earth. I don't need to be. Friends, when we face the same temptation to impatience with God, what's ultimately being asked in our heart is, do you really believe that God is sovereign? Are you really convinced of his steadfast love towards you? Are you really satisfied with him and with his acceptance and approval of you in his son? Let me close this morning with the words of Richard Phillips, great pastor. He said, are you tempted to seek the crown of salvation without the cross of a life governed by obedience to God's word? 
Are you tempted to justify sinful or worldly means because of the outward results will come more easily? Phillips goes on to say, may God grant us the power, along with David, to look at the crucified and resurrected Jesus, never to lay our hands on the blessing that God has promised in a manner contrary to his will that he has revealed in his word. Let us instead commit to receive whatever blessings God has for us from God's own hand or not at all. Friends, let me pray for us this morning. Father, may these words be the words of our heart. May you grant us by your Holy Spirit the working of your power in us to fix our eyes on your Son, crucified in our place for our sins, resurrected for our glory and justification. And may a a view of him and a confidence in your grace and your glory and your sovereignty and the steadfastness of your love that we see in him, may it work in us the power to never lay our hands on the blessings that you have promised in a way that's contrary to what you've revealed in your word. May our consciences remain so sensitive to your word. May your word be a delight into our life. Lord, let us commit to receive whatever you have for us from your hand and let us not settle for anything less than that. We want your promises and your blessings from your hand or nothing at all. And we ask that you would work this in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.